This is Africa Digest. A very good evening and welcome to Africa Digest on this uh, Monday. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg. Very, very cold Johannesburg it is, but we're managing. Well, I'm Asanda Matsawanyane in uh, for the uh, the show today. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. Uh, also with me is Onelin Zinzi, who's going to be giving us news in just uh, a short while. Wisani Matebula is going to give us some details on uh, what's happening in the world of economics. And then Musibudi Makura has our sports. So welcome to the show. So let's take a look at what's coming up this hour of Africa Digest. Kenya's president-elect to take oath of office, marking the beginning of his second and final term. South Africa's Western Cape province still expects scores of tourists this festive season amid strict water restrictions. In economics, Australian miner says its South Africa energy coal business will be run as a standalone unit. And then, of course, in sports, new Harambe Stars head coach outlines his plans for the team. So all of that and more coming up on Africa Digest. Let's get the news first now. As promised, here's Onele Zinzi. Thank you, Asanda. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta will on Tuesday take the oath of office marking the beginning of his second and final term. Kenyatta will proceed over a deeply divided nation and a country experiencing its worst economic shot slowdown in 10 years, uh, Sarah Kimani reports. Just over 60,000 guests will be at Kasarani Sports Stadium in Nairobi when Kenya's fourth president takes the oath of office. Kenyatta will be sworn in after two court battles and two presidential elections. While Kenyans are relieved that the swearing-in marks the end of a long political period, the political standoff in the country is however expected to drag on. The opposition has termed Kenyatta's victory as illegitimate. Teachers in Guinea-Bissau have finally ended their third strikes in September over pay and conditions. They are ever warned they could stage another walkout in 2018 if unresolved issues are not addressed. Two teachers unions say they had reached an agreement on salaries unpaid between 2011 and 2013, but additional bonuses linked to seniority were still under discussion and if not resolved within six weeks will mean new strikes. More than 700 teachers employed as contractors are now full-time civil servants, a key demand of the strikers. Primary and secondary school children will now head back to school after a two-week absence. Zimbabwe security forces say there are reports of looting and illegal occupation of farms and houses following the resignation of former President Robert Mugabe and the inauguration of his successor, Emerson Nangagwa. However, the military and police in a joint statement also say the situation in the country has returned to normal. This after a crisis during which the military staged a takeover and crowds demonstrated against Mugabe at the end of his 37-year rule. Many Zimbabweans applaud the military for its role in Mugabe his resignation, but resent the police for alleged corruption. Meanwhile, Zimbabwe has officially declared the birthday of former President Robert Mugabe on the 21st of February 
as a public holiday. It will be known as Robert Gabriel Mugabe National Youth Day. Mugabe resigned last week after military intervention and days of mass protests. New President Emerson Nangago is expected to form a cabinet this week. Mugabe's nephew says his uncle is in good health and is quite jovial, despite having been forced to resign after 37 years in power. Mugabe's wife, Grace, is reportedly concentrating on plans to build a university in her husband's honor. And lastly, suspended Gauteng Mental Health Director Dr. Makhabo Manamela in South Africa denies giving orders to Kulikin Care and Rehabilitated Center officials as well as NGOs to take in more mentally ill patients than they could care for. This despite employees at the center just testifying that they were ordered to do so and even had to move some patients from their centers to make way for new patients from life SED many facilities. Owners of NGOs have testified during the SED many hearing held in Johannesburg, how more patients were imposed on them. Lawyer for some of the victims' families, Dirk Kronewald, reads some of the evidence tendered at the hearing to prove that Manamela gave orders to that effect. I'm not a manipulator and I really feel that if there is a stirring like that between me and the people who are hating, it will cause me a danger and my family because everybody who came and testified before me these proceedings accepted their testimony and when I give my vision, I'm told that I'm a man- manipulator. I'm a professional person and I will ask that through you justice, let my vision be given, then you will come back and judge. Channel African News, I'm Onelensinsi. Thank you to Onele for our news update. And if you've just joined us, this is Africa Digest here on Channel Africa with me, Asanda Matsaunyane, on this Monday evening. Let's get to our business for the day and starting off in Kenya. Now, Kenya's president-elect Uhuru Kenyatta will on Tuesday take the oath of office, marking the beginning of his second and final term. Kenyatta will preside over a deeply divided nation and a country experiencing its worst economic slowdown in 10 years. Can Kenyatta secure his legacy? Sarah Kimani reports. Just over 60,000 guests will be at Kasarani Sports Stadium in Nairobi when Kenya's fourth president takes the oath of office. Kenyatta will be sworn in after two court battles and after two, take two. Kenyatta will be sworn in after two court battles and two presidential elections. While Kenyans are relieved that the swearing-in marks the end of a long political period, the political standoff in the country is however expected to drag on. The opposition has termed Kenyatta's victory as illegitimate. Here, Raila Odinga at an earlier interview with the SABC. It's not a question of being announced as the winner. That can be done any day. Could have even been done before. But is it going to be legitimate? Indeed, Kenyatta has extended an olive branch to his main opponents in a bid to put behind the bruising political battle. I extend a hand of friendship. I extend a hand of cooperation. I extend a hand of partnership. Knowing fully well that this country needs all of us pulling together in order for us to succeed. And Kenyans want us to succeed. James Shikwati is an analyst based in Kenya. I don't think it's going to be easy for, for the president to unite the country, but obviously he will make some attempts.
maybe to do so because remember if we have to succeed in our economic projections uh, we have to create some kind of impression that we are united. Kenyatta will also preside over an economy battered by months of politics and a drought that has left 3.2 million Kenyans in need of food aid. East Africa's biggest economy revised its economic growth forecast for 2017 downwards from 5.7 to 5.1 percent, but experts say it should bounce back. Shikwati again. I'm optimistic that it might just take off because part of the lessons we've been drawing from these elections has been how to uh, to delink political contestation with usual economic activity. Kenyatta will be sworn in together with his deputy William Ruto. Ruto is eyeing to succeed his boss when the country heads to the polls again in 2022. That, analysts say, is a man to watch during his next five years. This election is about the people of Kenya assessing and making a choice on the kind of policies, on the kind of government, on who they want to run their government for the next five years. Matters of 2022, we will cross that river when we get there. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. New president of Zimbabwe, Emerson Mnangangwa, says Zimbabweans must set aside poisoned politics and work together to rebuild the nation and re-engage the world. Mnangangwa was delivering an inclusive message to an exultant crowd that packed a stadium for his inauguration on Friday. Mnangangwa blamed for a number of uh, the crackdowns and damaging policies of his mentor and predecessor, the ousted Robert Mugabe also promised that democratic elections will be held on schedule in 2018 and that foreign investment will be safe in Zimbabwe, a message aimed at laying the groundwork for economic revival. Simon Muchemwa reports from Harare. History was in the making over the weekend when former Vice President Emerson Mnangagwa took oath of office as president following the resignation of 93-year-old Robert Mugabe. Although the rise of Mnangagwa was linked to a military intervention which some are saying was a coup, the former vice president paid tribute to Robert Mugabe and promised to deal with the rot in the country. In his speech, Mnangagwa said the political dispensation had changed, calling on all civil servants to pull up their socks. He promised to deal with corruption as well as insecurity in the country owing to factional fights in the ruling ZANU-PF. Focus on recovering our economy, we must shed misbehaviors and the acts of indiscipline which have characterized the past. Acts of corruption must stop. Mnangagwa added, To our civil servants, it cannot be business as usual. You now have to roll up your sleeves in readiness to deliver. We have an economy to recover, a people to save. Each and every one of us must now end their hour, their day, their week, and their month at work. Gone, gone are the days of absenteeism and sultory applications, days of unduly delaying and forestalling decisions and services in the hope of extorting dirty rewards. Those days are over. Mnangagwa, seen as a ZANU-PF reformist, issued a strong warning against criminals. Swift, swift, swift justice 
must be served. We have to aspire to be a clean nation, one son to high moral standards and deserve rewards. On these ideals, my administration declares full commitment, warning that grief awaits those who depart from the path of virtue and a clean business. Meanwhile, a court in Harare was on Monday expected to rule on outstate Zimbabwean Prime Minister Ignatius Chombo's bail application. Chombo, allegedly a member of the G40, is facing corruption charges, an offense that occurred more than a decade ago. He was among those detained by the military when it seized power before Mugabe resigned, and it is alleged he was assaulted while in military custody. Chombo's lawyer, Professor Lavmo Maduku, had this to say. They are very disappointing. They are simply military arrests, military rules. And it's very likely that we may be under military rule. From here, I mean, of course, we come back on Monday to deal with the bail issues. And if they refuse, we go to the high court. So we come, but we now really now know what we are facing, which is a very, very clear, predetermined sort of situation. That means this is exactly the way the courts were operating under President Mugabe. And we see that just that. Unless there's a signal to tell them to change, we will just be in for a very difficult scenario. For some, it's a new start for Zimbabwe, while least others feel Munangagwa could be bent on punishing his political enemies in the ruling ZANU-PF. For Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Attention to our listeners. From the 30th of October 2017, the first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700-hours show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hours Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. If you've just joined us here on Channel Africa, remember we are on Twitter. Our handle is at ChannelAfrica1. I'm Asanda Matzaunyani. Moving on to South Sudan now. A respected researcher and author reveals that more than 2 million South Sudan citizens have crossed into neighboring countries over the past five years as fighting rages in their country. James Shimanyula takes up the story. One of the world's veteran researchers and authors, Ali Varji, has presented a vivid picture of South Sudan refugees who fled their motherland to escape carnage caused by the ongoing fighting between rebels and government troops. Varji, a researcher specializing in East African politics and a visiting expert at the United States Institute of Peace, says more than 2 million South Sudan nationals have crossed into Ethiopia, Kenya, and Uganda over the past five years to seek refuge. There are more South Sudanese refugees in Uganda than anywhere else. There are now roughly a million or over a million refugees. And by the logic of saying that having a refugee presence will change the dynamics on the ground, that change should already be occurring. We can go back a year 
to when there were many fewer refugees in Uganda and indeed in all of the other neighboring countries. And yet there hasn't been the resultant sort of change. Researcher Ali Varigi visited areas where South Sudan refugees live and was surprised to find that they live and mingle with the local communities amicably. Varigi amplifies on this rare interaction between South Sudan refugees and the local communities in northern Uganda, where the majority of more than one million Sudanese refugees live, without forgetting that Ethiopia and Kenya too host more than one million other Sudanese citizens. Uganda in the areas which host refugees, there's no question that there are issues with the local communities, there are competing demands for water, for land. These are real problems. These are not necessarily uh, long-term, sustainable, good things for the people that live there. But northern Uganda is also very far away from the power politics of Kampala and of the presidency, where these decisions ultimately get made. Varigi draws parallel comparison on the flow of Sudanese refugees into Uganda and Syrian refugees fleeing their country, crossing into Turkey, Greece, and the larger part of Europe. Varigi also briefly focuses on Libyan refugees entering neighboring North African nations and also crossing the Mediterranean to seek refuge in European nations. There are several examples of this. Let's take the Syrian outflow of refugees from the that country, many of whom uh, ended up trying to cross uh, to Turkey uh, and then into Europe through Greece and other routes, or take the Libyan uh, refugee crisis through North Africa and then across the Mediterranean. Those refugee flows were seen as national security threats uh, to not only European countries, but also to the countries in the immediate region. So again, to go back to Syria, Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon have all had destabilizing effects as a result of those flows. We're not saying the same sort of change as a result of the South Sudanese uh, population for different reasons in different states. It's not the same reason in all of the uh, host countries. Be that as it may, researcher Ali Varji concludes by pointing out that even the secular political authorities in the countries where South Sudan refugees live have welcomed the Sudanese with both hands. Presence, the mere presence of South Sudanese refugees in Kenya, in Uganda, in Sudan, in Ethiopia doesn't matter to the political calculations that those states make vis-à-vis South Sudan. That was Ali Varji one of the world's veteran researchers and authors specializing on East African politics. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Egypt is reeling from the horrific militant attack on a mosque in the country's northern Sinai that killed more than 300 people. It is the deadliest attack by Islamist extremists in the country's modern history. President Abdel al-Sisi has declared three days of mourning following the attack. Channel Africa spoke to the head of the religious studies at the University of Johannesburg, Professor Farid Essak, about the attack and what it means for Egypt's war on terror. In general, the situation in in Egypt is escalating. Uh, We could be expecting, uh, maybe the worst case scenario is uh, a kind of situation that has developed in Afghanistan. Uh, At one level, many of the ISIS 
Hittites are returning from Syria and Iraq where they have received uh, bloodied noses and they have been on the retreat. Many of them come from Egypt and on the other hand the instability on the on the western side of Egypt from Libya as a result of the fallouts from the deposing of Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. That has led to many of the uh, extremists uh, coming from Libya into Egypt. So Egypt has a problem with its own indigenous Egyptians who have been fundamentalized both by conditions in Egypt and the harshness of the military regime after Mursi's fall. That on the one hand, the return of the jihadists from uh, Egypt and Syria and the influx of jihadists from their, their western border with Libya. Now, since April, Profa Egypt has been in a state of emergency, which saw the military and security forces waging a tough and costly campaign against uh, the militants in the towns, uh, villages, and desert mountains of uh, northern Sinai. Do you think this attack will mark a turning point in Egypt's war on terror? A turning point, but not necessarily a turning point for the better. The Egyptian government hasn't shown the finesse or the skills in responding to terrorism attack as in uh, one of its uh, as in one of its uh, neighboring countries the response has been very very clumsy very very ham-handed they will now go for an all-out kind of repression extend the dragnet catch innocence uh, in the process as well there's no rule of law in Egypt these people will be tortured like hell their families will know about it and suffer the impact on it and this will lead to a further alienation of people from the regime besides the fact that we mustn't forget at the end of the day it remains a military dictatorship and military dictatorships generally um, are not the best bet for a return to stability uh, and security uh, and above all democratic reform which Egypt so badly needs. Now, do you think the ultra-hardline Islamists are shifting tactics here, Prof, and picking new targets? Uh, because this is the first attack on a mosque in, in, in a long time. Do you think uh, they are shifting tactics and picking up uh, new targets here? Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, it's the first target on a mosque inside Egypt. And what's interesting is it's the first target on another quote-unquote Sunni mosque. Now, the Muslim world is generally divided into into two large denominational categories, the Shias and the Sunnis. And this is the first attack, major attack, by one Sunni mosque, by one tendency amongst the Sunnis, the Salafist tendency against another Sunni tendency, both of them being Sunnis. There are hardly any significant Shias inside Egypt, but it's the first time that the Salafis have attacked it, or the jihadists have attacked it, have attacked a, uh, another Sunni mosque. So this signifies a significant shift in their attitude. And this, of course, just shows part of the larger problem. I mean, Muslims uh, have watched as the Coptic churches were attacked in Egypt. And there was very little serious response on the part of Muslims. And now, and, every, and Sunni Muslims have remained quiet when Shi'i Muslims have been attacked and now Sunni Muslims are being attacked.
That's uh, Professor Farid Essek, Head of Religious Studies at the University of Johannesburg, talking to Kumbelo Mundelele. It's uh, 23 minutes past uh, 5 o'clock Central African time. This is Africa Digest. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Channel Africa. My name is Asanda Matsaunyani. Moving on to Somalia now, uh, aerial bombardment and ground fighting in Somalia's middle and lower Shebel regions this month have forced over 10,000 people to flee their lives. The Norwegian Refugee Council, the NRC, reports a spike in families fleeing fighting, arriving in overcrowded camps in the capital Mogadishu. Concerned about the humanitarian impact of the fighting, the NRC says camps are already overfilled with drought-stricken people barely surviving in flimsy shelters. NRC's media and communications advisor, Geno Teofilo. Over one million people have been crowded into these camps this year. Mainly this is due to the drought crisis that has been going on. But with this fighting that has been going on this month, this means an additional 10,000 people have fled the camps, most of them around Mogadishu. This means that it's more difficult for people to get aid as it's stretching resources. Families, they urgently need shelter, food and water. And do you expect the influx of people to continue? Do you expect this number to continue rising? More people will continue to be displaced in Somalia because the health crisis has been going on all year and it has not gotten any better. With this conflict that has occurred in the middle and lower Shabelle regions, this has just added an extra burden of displaced families that fled the fighting. We are hoping that the conflict will lessen and that the bad effects of the drought will also lessen, but uh, sadly it will take some months for the food crisis to reduce. You mentioned that it's difficult for aid to reach Mogadishu. How is the Norwegian Refugee Council responding to the situation? Are you managing to reach the people in need in those camps? The Norwegian Refugee Council and many other aid agencies are able to reach many of the communities that are suffering from the crisis in Somalia, not all of them. We are able to reach many camps in Mogadishu and also in other urban areas. It's many of the rural areas that are more difficult due to the conflict, due to access problems, and we are calling on all the parties to the council to allow free and clear access for humanitarian agencies so that aid can get to the people that need it. With this new conflict and the drought crisis, this is a double shock to many people because they're fleeing both conflict and drought. They have to endure multiple crises at once, and this can push people over the brink. And they're extremely concerned about any increased military action inside Somalia, especially in these areas where civilians are located. This increased action it's led to a surge in people fleeing. And, of course, there are already over a million people that already fled from the drought. So this is making an already dire situation even worse. Aid agencies are engaged in projects to help these people, but uh, security-related access restrictions can undermine this good work. And, Gino, in terms of resources and finances, is the Norwegian Refugee Council well-positioned to respond to the needs? Is it just only a matter of accessing those vulnerable that's a concern? The Norwegian Refugee Council and other aid agencies that are responding to the the drought and conflict crises in Somalia. We have been receiving more funding this year to help the people in Somalia than in previous years. However, the, it's still difficult to reach all areas due to the insecurity, which has caused access to be limited to some areas. 
That's uh, Gino Teofilo, Media and Communications Advisor at the Norwegian Refugee Council, on the line from Nairobi in Kenya, uh, talking to Jane Rabotata. Stay with us here on Africa Digest. Attention to our listeners. From the 30th of October 2017, the first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700-hours show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hours Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Here on Africa Digest, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Channel Africa One. So we'd love uh, to hear from you for your comments and suggestions for our show. And uh, remember, we're coming to you live from our Johannesburg studios uh, in uh, South Africa. My name is Asanda Matsaunyane on this Monday evening's edition of Africa Digest. We're going to get news headlines just now with Onele Nzinsi, and uh, she'll be giving us details on what's happening in the world of news. It's half past five. Kenya President Uhuru Kenyatta to take the oath of office, marking the beginning of his second and final term. Teachers in Guinea-Bissau finally end the third strike since September over pay conditions. And Zimbabwe officially declares the birthday of former President Robert Mugabe on the 21st of February as a public holiday. Channel African News, I am Onelin Sinsi. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment.
South Africa's water-starved Western Cape province is expecting hundreds of thousands of tourists this festive season amid strict water restrictions. The province is experiencing its worst drought in more than a decade. The capital city of Cape Town, in particular, receives around 1.5 million foreign tourists per year, with around 10% of these visiting the city in December. This influx is expected to put further pressure on the ailing water reserves. A number of bodies, including Airbnb, Cape Nature and Western Cape Government have announced plans to save 70 million litres of water a year through the distribution of 2,300 low-flow shower heads to guest houses, B&Bs and Airbnb hosts across the province. Joining us on the line now to talk about this uh, is a member in the Cape Town Mayoral Committee, Xanthia Limburg. Xanthia, welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Good afternoon and thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks for making time for us. I mean, uh, obviously, this has been you know, what we've been talking about, especially in the South African context, uh, in terms of the water shortages in the Cape. But obviously now with the December coming, you, you must have you know, so much stress going on in trying to make sure that people enjoy their holidays. But at the same time, this very important issue is, uh, is taken seriously. Well, in terms of consumption, um, domestic users who permanently reside in Cape Town will still be the largest users over the peak summer time. Mm. And our experience shows that the local outflow of people over the festive season mostly balances the inflow of local and forest foreign tourism. I mean, as we reach the peak summer season, we have the construction industry and many commercial operators and schools also closing. And so the fact that those operations massively reduce uh, the impact of water uh, consumption, uh, the inflow of additional tourists, both locally and internationally, then creates that balancing effect. So we believe in terms of additional tourists coming to our city that we will be able to manage um, our existing water resources uh, quite adequately. However, the city has finalized many of its summer season drought initiatives. And specifically as it pertains to tourism, uh, in October, the city launched one of its key initiatives called Save Like Local, which is aiming to drive awareness about the serious drought crisis, but at the same time to keep the message as light and inspirational as possible. We want tourists, both local and international, to come and visit and explore our city and enjoy the, its many wonders, but we want those tourists to save like a local and stick to the 87 meter per person per day requirement. And so the campaign includes things such as airport billboards, in-flight announcements about the dry crosses, and we provided a lot of material thus far to the hospitality industry and other tourist agencies as part of that um, continuous awareness. I mean, you touched on the impact of tourists as well and, and uh, tourism and, and, you know, the fact that the residents are the ones that are more, uh, you know, consuming water. Of course, it would be the case. But there's been mixed messages about the impact that tourists will have on the province's water reserves. What are you anticipating the, that impact to be? I know you're saying there are measures in place and contingencies. So the past consumption patterns over our peak tourist season does show that the impact of additional tourists coming to our city is minimal because we are seeing uh, the the slowdown of uh, the regional uh, economic sectors such as um, construction industry, industry, other uh, industry and commercial bodies 
closing their operations for the year. And because there is a lower consumption from those large users and from the domestic customers who also then leave and travel to go and visit other parts of the country or family elsewhere, the inflow of additional tourists has a balancing effect. And because there is lower consumption because of the shutdown, of uh, key economic sectors, uh, the impact can be managed and we believe that there shouldn't be um, too much strain on our existing water resources. However, we are obviously going to be monitoring um, both consumption and dam levels throughout the peak season as we try day-to-day basis. On that issue of monitoring, there's a, 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 a column that was written by Tom Eaton and uh, reports that you know the drought has to date not been taken seriously enough by some members of the hospitality industry. So Tom Eaton was writing about several randomly selected hotels that were not complying with the water restrictions. What actions have you taken against these hotels and how are you able to monitor their consumption of hotels um, in a way that, you know, makes sure that everybody works together, but at the same time, you know, not stepping on people's toes? Well, the city has been actively monitoring high consumers in all categories. And where there's been high consumption, particularly in the hospitality industry, we have issued the necessary letters and notifications. The mayor has also directly communicated with the heads of these hospitality uh, agencies um, and hotels within Cape Town. Uh, We have also um, drawn in uh, FDASA and other key agencies such as Airbnb to also reach out to their network. Obviously, where there is contravention of existing uh, water restrictions, we have issued the necessary fines. Uh, and we have also obviously, for particularly for domestic customers, installed uh, water demand management devices which restrict supply up until a certain threshold to ensure that we can hold those high users to account. Earlier in the year when we did a public naming and shaming, uh, some of the high consumers did include um, hotel uh, industry uh, bodies, and so we did highlight the need for everyone to contribute to those overall savings. And the city obviously continues the not only the monitoring of high consumption, but we follow through with the necessary enforcement. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, we hope everyone will adhere and as well as the tourists in terms of education, just understanding and everybody empathizing and doing the right thing. So thank you so much for your time, Xanthia. Thank you very much. That was a member of the Mayoral Committee in South Africa's city of Cape Town, Xanthia Limburg, joining us on the line. Stay with us here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa.
bringing you the African perspective. This is Africa Digest. I'm Asanda Mazzaunyane. Thank you for tuning in. Stay with Channel Africa. Now, moving to Libya, the world has responded with horror at images of migrant slaves auctions in Libya, which were exposed by a CNN investigation. The struggling United Nations-backed Libyan government has asked for assistance from global partners to assist with illegal violations against immigrants. A demonstration by hundreds of marchers, part of the Collective Against Slavery, and concentration camps in Libya took place on Saturday outside the Libyan embassy in Paris, France. To discuss this issue further, Channel Africa spoke to Itai Viriri, head online communications at International Organization for Migration, Otilia Maunganize, an international criminal law expert, legal analyst and strategist working on promoting a peaceful and prosperous Africa at the Institute for Security Studies, the ISS, as well as Dewa Mabinga, the Southern Africa Director with the Africa Division at Human Rights Watch. The International Organization for Migration uh, has been aware of these slave auctions since April when we first reported on this after we interviewed some of the people who had survived from these uh, detention camps. Uh, these are people that we were trying to help to get back home to various countries in West Africa. And what they were telling us at the time was quite, you know, what everyone is seeing now, but what was quite harrowing for us uh, hearing some of the stories of how uh, they were being sold off to to work on farms, to work on construction sites, to work on various um, locations in, within Libya. Mm. So we were sort of, uh, and I had to use the word please because this is a very uh, sad situation, but mm. we're pleased then that visual evidence because when we reported on this, we only had some photographs, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the CNN expose really showed us uh, what was happening behind the scenes. Well, very worrying indeed. And do we know how big this problem is, Itai, from a numbers perspective? Do we know how many of these uh, slave auctions there are? Are there any figures around what's happening here? Well, let me start with the figures of how many uh, migrants, uh, irregular migrants, are in Libya right now. We estimate anything up to 700,000. Uh, which is obviously quite a significant number. Of that number, we think around uh, just around 40,000 are in some form of detention. And this is where some of these auctions are taking place, these uh, immigration detentions, which are in most part uh, run by uh, the authorities. That is the uh, internationally recognized um, authority in Libya. As you know, there are two of them. And um, it's, it's, it's these, these centers where we are trying to get access so that we can actually get these individuals out. In fact, as of this weekend, uh, the International Organization for Migration is stepping up its efforts to remove these people from the detention centers and, and get them back to their countries of origin. We've taken out 15,000 so far, and our aim is to try and get to 30,000 by the end of the year. So it's quite a huge challenge. Uh, to try and get these kind of numbers out. But we've done it before um, uh, quite su- successfully. Well, let me bring Diwa into this conversation in terms of uh, seeing this issue of slave trade as a human rights violation. Of course, that's not rocket scientist. In 2017, it should be common knowledge that uh, slave trade definitely is a human rights violation. But uh, it seems like it's something that we still see as uh, peripheral and something that really, really is um, flourishing in the underground markets, Diwa. 
Yeah, absolutely, uh, Benjamin. And what is really worrying and concerning is that uh, on the continent, on the African continent, there hasn't been uh, that kind of uh, outrage and swift action from the authorities at the level of, say, uh, the African Union, uh, the African Commission on Human Rights, and the uh, sub-regional bodies like uh, ECOWAS, uh, the East African Community, and uh, the Southern African Development Community. There is need absolutely and urgently for these bodies to step up and um, quickly dispatch teams to investigate, to engage with the Libyan authorities, and to ensure that there is the protection of the migrants and the prevention of uh, this um, uh, illegal and immoral trade uh, in, uh, in in humans, this detected uh, slave trade. Uh, but there hasn't been that kind of swift movement, and it's, it's really disappointing that uh, African leaders do not seem to appreciate the gravity of the matter, that this is something that calls for um, swift and urgent attention. Mm, coming to you, Otelia, in terms of the horrifying images uh, that we've seen, I'm sure that you've seen them making their rounds in social media. Definitely I have on my Facebook. It's horrifying what people are actually sharing on social media, seeing these images of people um, in the slave trade situation. From a legal perspective, uh, do you think that uh, there is any way that uh, we can see some form of actions of intervening from a, a legal perspective. I know that uh, this is issue that is a criminal uh, act uh, against humanity and definitely should there be some kind of uh, operations in terms of who should be held responsible uh, for this and where do we start even when it comes to that type of an issue, Otelia, or is it something that's very difficult to deal with? Right, so I'll start with the last part which relates to the difficulty of dealing with it. Um, because ultimately whoever would be held accountable, we would have to identify those people first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is perhaps one of the main challenges in, in, in first uh, identifying the people who are carrying out these crimes and then being able to to find a, a proper response which is you know both rule of law based and, and, and advances the human rights of those who have been violated as well. Um, at the moment, um, you know, slavery, one, is criminalized, not only in terms uh, as a crime against humanity under, for example, mm. the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, um, but also in terms of customary international humanitarian law, which really uh, prohibits both slavery as well as the trade in slaves. So, so there is a basis on which you would be able to, to begin a, a prosecution. And it could mm. even go as far back as the smuggling itself. Mm. So before people found themselves in Libya, um, they, they were likely uh, smuggled across the border, which is how they, they got into the vulnerable position they're in. The, the, the reality is that the harder it is for people to access countries through legal channels, the more the numbers, you know, you heard Itai speaking about approximately 700,000 people mm. um, who have found their way into Libya, and that's just one country on the African continent mm. through which people are trying to get across. 
The Southern Africa Director with the Africa Division at Human Rights Watch, Dewa Mavinga, and uh, you also heard from Itai Viriri, Head of Online Communications, International Organization for Migration, Otilia Maunganidze, an international criminal law expert, legal analyst and strategist working on promoting a peaceful and prosperous Africa at the Institute for Security Studies, ISS, was also there. They were t- uh, talking to Benjamin Moshatama. It's uh, ooh, It's gone past quarter two, but we're going to go for economics news now. Here's Wissani Matebula. In your economics news, South African President Jacob Zuma has directed Finance Minister Malusi Gigaba to identify concrete measures to urgently address the country's economic challenges. The directive comes after global ratings agency Standard & Poor's downgraded the country's local currency debt to junk status last Friday. Moody's, meanwhile, had earlier on placed the sovereign on review for a downgrade. And the South African Chamber of Mines says the unfavorable decisions by ratings agencies on the country's long-term local currency rating come as no surprise given the absence of any fiscal plan in last month's medium-term budget policy statement. SNP downgraded the South Africa and Moody's placed the country on downgrade review while Fitch left South Africa at jank status on Thursday. The Chamber's Charmaine Russell has attributed the downgrades to some reckless statements from certain parts of government on free basic education funding of the National Health Insurance Scheme and the appetite for nuclear power as well as two recent cabinet reshuffles. All of these aspects uh, you know, add to the risk of runaway debt and debt servicing costs. It's definitely going to be a long, hard road back to investment grade, but it is possible. What is needed, though, is credible rescue plans that will turn the situation around. In a court uh, hearing for a challenge by South Africa's mining industry to revisions uh, to a sector charter which includes raising levels of black ownership has been postponed to February from December. The uncertainty around the matter is an added headwind deterring investment into a sector that accounts for 8% of South Africa's economic output. The mining charter is part of a wider empowerment drive in South Africa designed to rectify the disparities of apartheid that persist more than two two decades since uh, the end of white minority rule in 1994. An Australian miner, South Derry 2, says its South Africa energy coal business will be run as a standalone unit uh, with uh, the goal of widening its ownership and possibly listing it on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. The South African government made changes to the country's mining charter in June, raising the threshold for black ownership of mining firms to 30% from 26%, despite the protests from the Chamber of Mines. The mining charter contains regulations meant to redress imbalances of the nation's past apartheid rule and stipulates rules for white-owned companies to sell stakes to black businesses. And Petro Diamonds, uh, which is a company that has been uh, located in Tanzania and working in there, its chief executive officer, Johan Dipaner, says a possible breach of its uh, banking agreement does not pose a big risk to the mining company because of its finances 
will improve following the end of labor dispute in South Africa, in South Africa and the lifting of an uh, export ban in Tanzania. The London-listed Petra flagged a possible breach of two of its debt covenants in October due to a three-week strike at the South African operations and a confiscated consignment of diamonds in Tanzania. Financial indicators now, the dollar at 14.11 South African rands, at 10.24 Botswana Pula and 10.02 Zambian Kwacha, also trading at 74 pence to the British pound and 83 cents against the euro. Commodities gold at $1,290, platinum at $93.938 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil $63.87 per barrel. And that's your economics news for now. Thank you, Wisani, for our economics update. Let's get sports news now. Here's Musibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans. I am Mosibu Dimakura with the latest sports news at the Sawam. Starting off with football news, Kenya's national football team, Arame Stars head coach Paul Putt, has made changes to the squad for the Sakafa Senior Challenge Cup with Zoo Keroke defender Isaac Kipjong called up to replace injured Gwomahia defender Haran Shakava. Now, the new coach met up with the players for the first time on Sunday as the team reported for camp to prepare for the Challenge Cup. Here is coach Putt talking about what his plans are for the team. First of all, you have to approach uh, game by game. So now we have to see uh, the final decision of CAF. Mm-hmm. If we are playing in, in uh, September, uh, the first game. Mm-hmm. If we are playing in Ghana, then we have to concentrate on Ghana. But before this, in March, I want to uh, organize one or two friendly games mm-hmm. with the national team, with the players abroad, and uh, if we have to add with uh, local players. And also during June, I'm working uh, to get a training camp also to see if we get uh, opportunities to play uh, friendly games. Mm-hmm. For pre- pre- preparing uh, the Ghana game, which is a very important game, we will be a home game. So I think uh, this period, March, is a very important period that mm-hmm. we can get all the players to let me also uh, learn the players yes. and also to, to give my philosophy of football to the players and then also in June to prepare the Ghana game. Back home, Tabo Sunong, head coach of the South African under-20 men's football team, says the 5-0 friendly win over Lesotho has raised their confidence heading into the Kosafa under-20 youth championship. Now, Amajita thumped their neighbours in Maseru on Sunday afternoon. Coach Sunong is expected to announce the team that will play in the tournament this week. The regional tournament takes place in Ketwe, Zambia, from the 6th up until the 16th of December. Now, South Africa has been paired with North African guest nation Egypt, Mozambique, as well as Mauritius in Group B. On to cricket news, Virat Kohli has been rested for India's three one-day internationals against Sri Lanka next month and Rohit Sharma will lead the hosts in the absence of the regular captain. Kohli leads India in all three formats of the game and the 29-year-old has been an imperious form of the bat with India scheduled to travel to South Africa for a full try immediately after the Sri Lanka series. The selectors have decided to rest Kohli for the ODIs which start on the 10th of December.
And finally, South African multi tennis players Khotato Monjane, Lucas Sitol, as well as Evans Mariba are en route to England where they will compete in the last tournament of the year, and that is the NEC Singles Masters. The tournament gets underway on the 28th of November and concludes on the 3rd of December. Here is Wolche Tennis South Africa's Public Relations Manager, Anthony Muratani. From there, they'll move on to uh, the last event of the year, which is the NEC Singles Masters, which takes place in London. Well, those are sports news at the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Let's recap uh, some of our top stories from this hour. Kenya's president-elect to take oath of office, marking the beginning of his second and final term. And South Africa's Western Cape province still expects scores of tourists this festive season amid strict water restrictions. So that's how we wrap up this hour of Africa Digest with me, Asanda Matzaunyane. Thanks to our producer, Luanda Maome, our technical producer, Deborah Musweu, and Onelen Zinzi on News, Wisani Matebula on Economics, and of course, Musibu Dimakura that you just heard there on uh, sports. That's our Africa Digest team. Thanks for listening and for comments on the show, do send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also SMS plus 27823325905. You can also tweet us at channelafrica1 is our handle. Taking us to the top of the hour, here is Inganyezi, a song by Mondli Nobo.